0: Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talk and Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts. Hi and welcome back to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is Derek Duncan. This is episode 55, and my guest is Tom Dunn. Developers like Mike Kaiser Herb Kohler, the late Mark Parsonen, the Mosaic Company, and many others deserve enormous praise for their role in creating some of the most unique golf experiences in the world. When it comes to enhancing our enjoyment and connection to the game, however, there's another group of people who are worthy of the same level of praise. Publishers. Especially independent boutique publishers like Tom Dunn, who, at great time and cost, Compile stylish, flavorful issues full of unique stories and histories, and who, through the voices of writers from around the world, help keep old traditions fresh, introduce new ones, entertain and inform, and bring the game we love alive and into our thoughts and living rooms. Dunn founded McKellar Magazine, along with Lawrence Donegan, nearly three years ago. McKellar is a beautiful bookshelf collection of the best in contemporary golf writing, and is helping drive an encouraging revitalization of the printed word. If you haven't heard of McKellar, or are not up to date, you can order the latest issue at mckellarmagazine.com. Please check it out and support independent publishing. Dunn began his print life in the 2000s as editor of the now-sadly-defunct Travel and Leisure Golf magazine, which was shuttered in 2009. Disclosure, I worked closely with TNL Golf and Dunn from 2006 to 2009. He's been involved in every level of the publishing world, and currently, when not breaking his back producing McKellar, Dunn is part of Golf Week magazine, writing and overseeing their course rating panel. Aside from Tom's supreme journalistic skills and entrepreneurial bent, he's a deep and independent thinker about golf architecture, travel, and history. His takes are learned, introspective, and deeply considered, which of course is why I wanted him to come on the podcast. Okay, that's true. But the other reason I wanted him to come on was to finalize a long-simmering disagreement between us, to stage a podcast winner-takes-all cage match, debating the merits of the newly-renovated Bobby Jones golf course in Atlanta. Several months ago, after we had both played it, we traded a series of lively text coming from different positions, and later agreed to air our thoughts live. When we got down to it, however, it seemed our naturally cool dispositions had taken over, and we couldn't really muster the same passion about the topic either way. Oh well, we moved on to all sorts of other things, including the state of print publication, architecture, and the search for more lo-fi, bespoke, even romantic golf experiences. Tom was going all Henry David Thoreau during the talk, enjoying a temperate August morning from some natural outdoor space near his home outside of New York City, so you may be aware of the sound of birds and breezes and the buzz of insects. Well, it's a tremendous soundtrack to this lively and lovely conversation with my friend, Tom Dunn. So when I was on your podcast uh, last spring, the McKellar podcast, to kind of you know help promote the latest issue of McKellar, mm-hmm. we sort of teased at the end of that podcast that that uh, you and I were going to have a a go at it about a certain topic. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. I don't know if, if how many listeners of to that podcast listen to this one or are going to listen today, but but the issue was. Bobby Jones golf a, course in Atlanta.
1: We've had a long cooling off period on that. <laughs> yeah, a little too long. We should have, we should have done this when it
0: was kind of fresh. I think the, <laughs> the fires left. But just to give everybody the, the background, you came down to Atlanta uh, in the sp- early spring uh, to write a, a story on Bobby Jones. Uh, for golf week magazine. And that came out of last issue or the issue before the story did. And Bobby Jones is a city owned golf course, or it was a city owned golf course. It was one of four that the city owned and uh, it was pretty run down very popular but it was a really cramped property right in the middle of a very upscale part of town right central to this neighborhood a lot of activity around it it's a really great area of town but the golf course was pretty shaggy and uh, cramped in pretty dangerous to play you know you could hit balls out out into the street and so forth so a uh, private organization uh, created a, a foundation and worked out a land swap with the city. So they got had access to Bobby Jones and they renovated it. And they created a brand new golf experience there. Uh, the highlight being the nine hole. They went from 18 holes to nine holes uh, and made it a reversible routing. So one day you'd play a certain direction and the next day you'd play the opposite direction. And built new practice facilities, new infrastructure, parking garage. I mean, just a whole a whole big deal there. So that's the background. You you came and wrote a, a story on it. You and I were texting. I played it soon thereafter, and uh, my reaction uh, was the opposite kind of of yours, at least based on our our initial thrust. And I, I I had a hard time with it. I was I was pretty critical of it. And just to kind of cut forward to this conversation we're having now, I thought we were going to have a, a throwdown about it. But then when I read your story in golf week, it was so well done and so balanced. You kind of like acknowledged every, one of my points and criticisms about the project. So it sort of took the, took the fire out of me.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where you definitely want to build that in. I'm glad that i talked to you about it, you know, and I wanted to be, um, you know, fair in my, in my assessment about it. I mean, what I saw really was, uh, something that at least you know from a superficial two-day visit um appeared to be a really successful um uh, community golf upgrade right um i mean i think golf architecture is one thing but then you know there's sort of a separate category of you know how is this serving a community you know and i happen to live in an area where you know, outside of New York, where I feel community golf is, is pretty poor. Um, you know, the, the Westchester County municipal system is, uh, you know, it's an organization that, you know, I, I, that I, that I give a hard time to a lot because I, I don't, you know, I just don't think it really provides the right kind of access to, to kids, to junior golfers. Um, and I mean, what I, the, the thing that really struck me about Bobby Jones was, just kind of how how it was being used in different ways by different groups you know i, I felt like it did have a nice inclusivity to it that you know that I've, I've certainly seen elsewhere in the country at winter park and at common ground and places like that and anytime i see it it's kind of refreshing because it's it's really not like that where i live my
0: thing would be well, first of all they, they did build a, a great driving range and the practice area is um, something that didn't exist in that part of town before. So you have to acknowledge that that's an upgrade. Um, But I guess what I, I I, I agree with what you said, but at the same time, like that course was being used quite often by so many people in there Mm -hmm. and they didn't, I mean, I'm I'm sure people who go back now, you know, if you polled them, some would, prefer the new version but there's a lot of people that would prefer the old version that was you know it's it's sort of like the upside and downside of gentrification you know that course was gentrified and brought up to a new standard but a lot of people were using it and liked it liked the old version they liked the price they liked you know that they could get out there with their friends so there was always a community aspect around that golf course now uh, I, and i don't know to be honest with you i don't know the situation now i don't know how often youth groups are using it and are uh, do they, what what the youth program how many people are attending that how accessible is it to uh the kind of kids that you really want to reach a lot of the kids who live around there in those houses uh, probably belong to clubs their parents do um so mm-hmm. they don't that you know access to good golf and good instruction is not the problem um right. so you know that's that's just the thing about the whole project is yeah, they, they probably made made it better for some people, but you know, is it a slam dunk like some of the other projects we mentioned around you just mentioned are
2: right.
1: Yeah, I mean and like a lot of munis, a lot of times it's kind of the luck of the draw in terms of when you go and you know, what what kind of experience you have. I mean when I went out there, I played with a couple friends, um and uh, you know, we got around we played nine holes in you know, probably two hours. And, and, you know, we saw plenty of people out there, but the pace was, was just fine, you know, and then, uh, uh, one of the guys and I, um, you know, jumped on the belt line and went down to his neighborhood around, uh, MLK and, you know, went out to dinner. And, you know, I think that that's, that was another aspect of, of Bobby Jones that, that impressed me was, you know, just how, Which is really a kind of a Greater Atlanta story is is the the rise of the Beltline in the past fifteen years or so. You know, in New York, we have the High Line, which is you know beautiful kind of tourist attraction that uh, is you know built on old elevated railroad tracks on the west side of Manhattan. But I mean, the Beltline is a far more ambitious project where you know it's kind of a a network of of multi use trails that practically uh, encircle the city. And I mean, so you can move from neighborhood to neighborhood uh, on a bike or on one of those crazy bird scooters that people are constantly driving <laughs> into ditches. Um, yeah, until those are outlawed. You know. Did those get outlawed?
0: Uh, in some parts of town, yeah.
1: yeah I live in I the town that I live one.
0: in is sort of like adjacent to Atlanta, but and they're not allowed here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's sort of closer. It seemed like in kind of the core of the city, people were definitely still using them when yeah. I was there in the spring. Um, and, uh, just the idea of, of being able to, you know, to get around that city, you know, on foot or on a bike is, I think is really appealing. Um, and you know, so that, that trail, that belt line goes right by Bobby Jones now. And so I loved the fact that when we were kind of in that flat plain section, which I guess is, you know, sort of in the Southern part of the property, you know, you would see people jogging by and, you know, um, moms and dads pushing strollers and, mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like that Chambers Bay phenomenon of bringing the or St Andrews, you know, bringing the outside in. You know, I've always felt that that golf uh, has a better chance of of being accepted by communities if people, if the greater community can see it being played. You know, where people can see just folks from all different backgrounds out there having fun. You know, it's it. You know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, just just putting it on display shows people that it's not just sort of, you know, idiots in plaid pants doing donuts and golf carts and stuff. Like, it, you know, that, that it's like a nice activity for families and friends and, you know, all that good stuff.
0: When, when I played, the first time I played um, and when it, it lent, this lent to my criticism of it was, we played on a weekend. We went around twice, so we played eighteen holes, and it took us about five hours. And that was very frustrating, you know, because your first, my first thought is, you know, they they went through all of this, and 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 now on a weekend we have to play a five hour round. Uh, and then the second time I went back was on a weekday morning. I went out by myself, and I got around nine holes in a little less than two hours. So you know right. that. So to your point was you know, that's golf. It, it, it's, it's no better, no worse than in most public places. And I, I think I tend to agree with that now, but about the community aspect, we played one hole on the weekend and we we're coming around. It's that hole, uh, on one of the, where that lake dog, lake, where the hole, the dog legs right around the lake. So I think that's the Magnolia uh, routing. And yes. we hit our drives and we're coming up to our balls and we notice there's a person up ahead of us between our balls and the green kind of close to the shore of the lake. But she, we realize it's a, it's a person she's sitting down. She had come in just off of the the trail and was sitting there on the grass, like looking at the lake. And I but she was right in our line of play we had to hit our we would have had to hit our golf balls like right over the top of her so we kind of looked at her and eventually she strolled off very very slowly but just kind of (laughs) toward us and then she sat down again but she was meditating and i mean it's a beautiful thing like like this is great this is what you want this space to be for like shared space we talk about as you mentioned before community golf this is like an ideal (laughs) there you know at the same time there maybe should be uh, I guess there's a learning curve uh, to it as well. And I welcome people yeah. on the golf course, but uh, yeah. I don't want I mean, to hit them mean I golf I just,
1: It's so simple. I mean, you just, you communicate with the non-golfer and, you know, make sure that they're aware that you're about to, yeah. to hit Incoming. a hard yeah. object in their direction. Yes. And, Do you know the word you know, for? I mean, this is something that. that is, is very common in the UK. I mean, Pinard in Wales is a, you know, really neat braid course, uh, you know, kind of out by Swansea and, um, you know, it has a very popular walking trail that, that takes, you know, takes backpackers and kind of day hikers down to this beautiful beach and, 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 uh, river estuary. And so there are constantly, you know, just folks with backpacks hiking through Pinard and, you know, you have to just be mutually aware. Um, you know, I think as long as you're, you know, just willing to like, be like, Hey, what's up? Like just, you know, four pretty much. And you know, most people are, are pretty cool about it. Like they understand that they're passing through a golf course and you know, you're going to wait for them to move along and Mm that's that. Yeah. So, yeah, but I I like it. I think it's charming.
0: Let me ask you this question about Bobby Jones. Some of the figures that I heard that were spent on this project run up to about $25 million.
1: Um, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, is there, is there something that has, is going awry when to get this product? That's what, that's what the price tag is. Is that offensive yeah. to you on some level? Cause it is to me a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't know, you know, if, uh, there are a million sort of, you know, it sounds like, you know, there are probably a lot of lawyers that got involved and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, sort of urban graft that maybe is taking place in, in that scenario. I mean, you know, Ferry point park, in the Bronx was oh, a, yeah. you know, was a course that was built on a landfill. And I mean, that was a, just a model of corruption for 20 years before that thing got done. And I mean, that was into the you know past a hundred million dollars and, you know, it was really just like various officials just kind of putting their hand in the till. And so that, yeah, of course it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know the, you know I, I don't know that it's a golf architecture issue as much as it is a, a good government issue you know just being able to streamline deals so that so that community co- community golf can can be created in a in a way that is doesn't carry an offensive price tag
0: there's a lot of infrastructure that went into it a, a lot of excavation there was a lot of land work there were you know they that cost I'm sure includes Other facilities, maybe extra tennis courts and the parking garage and things like that. But it seems like for $25 million, I I would expect a a better golf experience, better golf project. So maybe we can talk about, let's talk about uh, before we let this subject die mercifully. I
1: mean, what I would, the the, the one caveat that I would say is that my understanding is that uh, Atlanta and Georgia taxpayers didn't pay for it. I mean, so I believe result, you know,
0: privately. Uh, it, yeah. I mean, if
1: it's other people's money, then, you know, it's almost like you don't have quite the same right to be offended. I mean, is it wasteful? Sure. But hey, it wasn't your money. I mean, you know, it, it's a different story when you talk about, you know, true, you know, truly municipal municipally funded taxpayer funded projects
0: yes so so that transfers the offense to your sensibility to your subjectivity and i was subjectively <laughs> offended <laughs> by by some of the some of the architecture and and, and things so it's a reversible nine whole course and I, I i think i said to you and anybody else who would listen to my ranting uh th- this would have been a great opportunity f- in my opinion instead of trying to do like re- reversible nine which it doesn't it, it doesn't really work overall i don't think what a, it would have been a great opportunity just to build like a great nine holes or a great 12 holes or to yeah, kind of break the that. model and, and do something that was really original and fresh and engaging and did not have the drawbacks that this reversible routing does.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it has its moments. I mean, it, I, it's clear to me in, you know, when it comes to reversibility as a general concept, that that having pronounced natural features is actually a drawback. Um, You know, I think one of the reasons that the loop is successful is, you know, is that it is a pretty uh, gentle property. You know, Bobby Jones has this, this fairly dramatic ridge and stream uh, uh, combo that kind of divides the property. And what happens with that is that each of the nine, each of the nines interfaces with that ridge and stream, Crossing uh, in different ways, and so you wind up with a couple holes that that work really well in each direction, and then a couple of that that simply do not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I mean, you know, I was actually just recently out at Sylvie's Valley Ranch in Oregon, which is Dan Hickson's reversible course, and uh, you know, that's a that's a property with with pretty significant and appealing ground movement and you know, his strategy was, was to not be kind of a a purist about, you know, having a a true reversible where every green served another hole. He went went out and built a bunch of greens that are just unique to the two eighteen hole routings, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, that were produced. And and I think it works, I think it works really well. Um, so you have, you know, these kind of like scissor shaped fairway, you know, um, fairway complexes that, that serve both directions, but then you'll have a green, you know, over here and another one over there that, that sort of are played for each of the two 18s. And Bobby Jones has a little bit of that. There's there is one green that only serves. I can never remember whether it's magnolia or azalea, but it's that it's that one green that would uh, be directly beneath the clubhouse when it is in fact constructed. And yeah, kind it's of on the other side of the creek. It it receives
0: yeah. the ninth hole from both routings.
1: Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah.
0: Gosh, does it? Okay.
1: Yeah. So, so it, so it is in fact a true reversible. Then.
0: Yeah, I, I mean it's it's hard to it's hard to explain this to to, to people if uh, the reversible concept, you know, it's it's very it's hard to to visualize. Uh, about how it works did sylvie's valley ranch does it does it work for you did it i mean did it make yeah. sense there's a there's a there's just like a, a very basic litmus test i think with the reversible courses does it make sense does it work yeah. is it functional
1: yeah i mean i think it makes i think it makes sense in in the simplest ways which is that it's it's really fun in both directions um you know and it doesn't it, it never feels forced and i think that a part of that is that hickson was willing to. To be flexible in terms of you know he was really trying to find two, 18, two really good eighteen hole routings heading in different directions on relatively the same p- piece of property but I mean out there I mean this is a this is a an, a ranch that has tens of thousands of acres that helps um, yeah, so yeah I mean they're 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 not lacking for for land and he ha- he had the capacity to do that um, it's not. <laughs> Comparing it to Bobby Jones is extremely apples and apples and oranges. You know, as far as a a hemmed-in urban site where you know you have to make some hard decisions about how you know how certain aspects, you know, certain features on the property are used. Yeah,
0: one of the. I mean, to to be fair and balance out the. My criticism of Bobby Jones, the green complexes are really nice. They're, there's a lot of cool movement in them. The way they are they set up a little bit off the ground is is pretty neat. And they're utilized differently. And I don't know if this is a positive or a negative. They're utilized differently. It, think of like St. Andrews where you're approaching the double greens. The, they're presented lateral to the line of play. So if you're looking at a green that's 100 yards left to right, these greens are, are parallel to the line of play. So you're always coming from either direction on the narrow access. So they don't really look like big double greens. You're really only playing to like that front front lobe. But again, that with that property, that's I think if you're going to go with a double green concept, that's the only way that you could probably
1: pull it off. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm thinking of a couple places where uh where the axis changes. Um, There's one
0: the one by the um beneath the, the driving the range that that's the best green on the course. It's that's a wide narrow green that you approach from the same direction though once either the left hand green or the right hand green
1: that's right that's cool yeah there's one where you you kind of hit this really fun drive off the ridge and it's you know it becomes a a drivable par four and then uh yeah but that but there's a lot of width in that green um it's presented on the on the kind of east west axis i guess Mm -hmm. um but the trouble is when you come back if you were to flip it and you've got this, you know, this then uph- blind uphill drive into onto that same ridge, and then the approach is kind of a Semi-blind. maybe hundred to one hundred and twenty yep. yard shot to a green that's on the on the on the far side of, of the downhill slope, mm-hmm. and there's a car path with a car
0: there. path that goes cuts in front of it.
1: Yeah, well, that's the uh, is, this,
0: yeah. The cart path um, is the biggest issue. I mean, if if they could have not dedicated themselves to being a cart facility, because they have the sh- the shark experience carts. You know, they're they're the nicest golf carts you can get. They're Wi-Fi and Bluetooth enabled, and they must probably massage your back or something when you're sitting in them. But they went they went all in on the carts, and then so therefore there are cart paths that just cut every which way across the fairways and across the sides of the yeah, holes.
1: Yeah, the, the, some of the sight lines are less than ideal. However, on the flip side of that coin, uh, Bobby Jones is also 100% adaptive, uh, friendly for adaptive golf. You know, I mean, all of the bunkers are zero entry, you know, which I think is a great, you know, that, that sends a really nice message of inclusivity that, you know, if, if you are a golfer in need of, uh, taking a, an adaptive cart and, you know, Bobby Jones is a place where where you can play and get around the course comfortably, and you know, I I think that's a nice thing for a, a community course, you know, in an urban setting.
0: Exactly. So, I, I think what's what will happen is, I think people already do like it. I think a lot of people, maybe who had my impression of it, will kind of like <laughs> just adapt to it, be less critical. It'll just become part of the the. Atlanta golf landscape will accept it for its flaws and and like it for what it is. Just like you do with any golf course, it was just that initial out of the gate reaction and seeing the cart paths and um, just how the the reversible nine thing was maybe a, a stretch that they didn't need to do. But you know, once once all that is out of my system, I, I can accept it, and I think most other people will too.
1: Yeah. Well, in my in my second round there, and this is not something that should should be played down too much is, you know, I, I went out as a single and, you know, kind of gradually picked up other singles throughout the run to the point where we ended as a foursome. And, uh, what were they doing you know, out there? Just it, were they lost? <laughs> no, they were playing, Come they were us. playing, but you'd, you'd sort you of catch home. another signal sing you know, you'd catch another single and then you'd, you'd start playing with them. And then another guy would, you know, jump, you know, jump into you. So we became a foursome and, you know, two of the guys were, you know, Atlanta guys, uh, who, you know, were, kind of i think it's a candler park right that's the yeah. is that the name of the yeah
0: that's a little um, nine hole course that that's the golf course that I, I wish the foundation would have taken just two million of that 25 million and shoveled it over to candler park and came up with right. really one of the best nine hole courses in the country
1: yeah see i mean you had a couple of locals and then our fourth was guy who was just you know in town on business and the guy from virginia you know who had heard about the fact that atlanta now had a a reversible golf course and was curious enough to check it out so you know I, I i do like the you know i mean it's is it a gimmick sure but you know if it's going you know, to attract some people who are just curious about how that works then that's cool too
0: i encourage everybody to track down the that issue of golf week was it the may the may issue the june issue
1: it's the it's june issue yeah
0: tom tom's piece is excellent it explains all this it's balanced it, it goes into the details in a much more Cohesive way or coherent way that, that I'm capable of explaining it to you right now, but it's an interesting project and it's a it's a great story you wrote on it. Um, Thanks. Let's let's talk about McKellar because you know this is such a unique thing and a, and a beloved thing to me. I, I'm you know have a, written for it before, so I, I like it. What in the world encouraged you to f- become a founder and publisher of this artsy little boutique magazine? I mean, it seems like such a such a, a daunting task or a daunting thing to undertake.
1: Well, it is. I, I mean, the short answer is that I I love print. Um, you know, I came up in in print media with Travel and Leisure Golf in the two thousands, and you know, I love the 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 entire process of uh, you know assigning a story and getting the getting it in and you know, doing your copy editing and, and, you know, working with, uh, photo editors and art directors, and then, you know, having this thing that is, you know, is permanent at the end of the day. Um, you know, you, you're, when you put, when you commit something to print, it's time consuming and expensive. And so, you know, you really do put a lot of work into making sure that it's as close to perfect as it can be. And I have, I think, perfectionist and control freak tendencies in my personality that uh that sort of sparks with um i just i I enjoy the entire process of you know just deciding how you know how this whole thing's gonna gonna come together and you know i felt like uh this was a a good time to do it um you know i think there's a, a lot of a lot of interest in what the independent publishers are doing these days and um i think that the the golf media landscape is is in a pretty good place right now.
0: I'm pleased to hear that. I'm not sure I would have expected you to say that.
1: Well, compared to ten years ago, I think it is.
0: Well, yeah, ten years ago was sort of like the the bottoming out. Um,
1: well, the- Yeah, and I mean, you know, I went through that. Yeah. Like that, you know, that was not something that was you know academic to me. Like that, you know, the financial crisis directly affected my life. I lost my job and. Um, you know, it felt like my, my career had, had gotten into a car accident. So, you know, I've watched, you know, I've watched a lot of what I see of the media is, you know, has been a a recovery for over the past decade, uh, from, from that, you know, in the context of technology, just changing everything and, or the, you know, the, you know, the online world changing everything, you know, and I think that that's, I think that that's exciting. Um, you know, I think that it's a positive thing, that, you know, just how, how things are evolving right now.
0: So you're optimistic though, that that venture like McKellar, you know, the golfer's journal, caddy, these kind of things that there's a, there's an audience out there that will keep these things, uh, in production.
1: I think there's an audience. It's, you know, whether the, whether, <laughs> whether they're viable as businesses is a, is a completely different question. <laughs> um, well, just because of the, the overhead, I mean, you know, the, the, the production expense is one thing that, I mean, the killer is really shipping. It's, you know, it's, it's the U S postal service. Um, you know, it's just expensive to get the product in people's hands. And, you know, I think that more than anything, that is what, you know, kind of depresses the audience. Um, you know, compared to just having an e-newsletter and just, you know, delivering that thing. But, you know, I, I, I've always felt, I've always felt like it's, it's really cool to have something that not everybody else has. You know, I've always, I've always thought of my work and the things that I appreciate as being, you know, things that are, that are the product of scarcity rather than ubiquity. Um, you know, like in the nineties when you would go to a record store in your college town and find some, some weird, you know, some weird LP or, or EP that none of your friends had. And you'd be like, Hey guys, I got this thing. And, you know, or zines, you know, you'd go to go into the city and you know, St. Mark's place and like, look at, you know, some feature about Thurston Moore in some, you know, punk zine that, you know, had a circulation of five or something and, you know, just the idea that like, you're the only, you're, you know, you're getting a message that most people are not, you know, it's, it's this, it's this kind of cachet, this insider cachet. Uh, I've always kind of been addicted to that, to be honest. Yeah. Um, And so that's, that's something that, you know, that's, that's something that kind of underlies McKellar is the idea that it's not for everyone, you know? Um, I don't want it to be for everyone, uh, but I, but that said, the people who buy it, I want them to be really satisfied with what they get. You know, that means the world to me. And, you know, the comments that Lawrence and I get about it are, you know, are, are, are really nice and, you know, have made some new friends through it. And I mean, one guy invited me to national, invited me to play national golf links because he was a fan of McKellar and it's pretty good. Yeah, that's so. good.
0: <laughs> that might be worth it right there, you know, end story. Yeah.
1: Yeah, make a new friend, play a great golf course, and you know that's fringe benefits, right? Right. right. So, but I mean, that, I hope that answers your question to at least, at least, or at least part of your question.
0: Yeah, I was interested in like you know the viability of of print media, and I still don't you know as you know as well as anybody. It's I don't think that's really sorted out yet. Um, there's a lot of transition happening. McKeller definitely op- occupies its its own space. To me, what I see is. It's it's probably like it's always probably been there this tension between you know quick reactive news we're talking about you know the, it's, whether it's a podcast or a, a Twitter feed or uh, a daily email blast or a uh, you know the, a, a journalist writing about what just happened and you get all these voices ringing in on whatever the the controversy or topic of the day is and and that seems to be thriving that's a booming market right there and there are obviously people. Audiences respond to that constant flow of direct, fast, but ultimately kind of empty bits of, bites of information. And then versus this other thing that's a slow, handmade thing that you're bringing to the market. The stories are slow. They take more time and investment to read. Uh, They take a long time to produce. They take a long time, as you described, to assemble this magazine. And so you have these two different avenues of input and one seems to be dominant and overriding and constant and then the other is you have to go seek it out and I'm glad to hear that that you're, you're proud of McKellar I mean I hope it I hope McKellar's around forever I, I just want you to tell me that there's an audience for that and, and they're loving it and supporting you
1: well I, you know I think that you know I think the key word that you use there is seems I mean you know, I think in the digital space, you know, there are plenty of challenges to, you know, producers, you know, who are trying to, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't really want to talk about money. I mean, that's not that's not something that gets me too excited. But I, I think that digital, pro, you know, producers have their own challenges in terms of, you know, making money on, on the back of their creations. Um, you know, I think they are a different set of problems from what what print producers have but you know i think they do exist as well so you know i I, but i mean i think the you know the digital stuff feels dominant because people just spend all day on twitter you know or, or you know just at their desks they're you know kind of multitasking and you know just feeling bored by what they're doing at work and flipping through you know golf club atlas or whatever it is that they're doing but um you know that's that's just sort of one that's one facet of a golfer's a golf media consumer's existence i think a lot of people you know at the end of the day like you you, you close your laptop over and like you just feel like almost drugged because you've spent so much time on your screen all day that you know i, I think that a lot of people respond really well to the idea that you know a, a print product is something that you can you know, take to the beach, or you know, take on an airplane, and just you know, get away from a screen. I'm, I spend so much of my time trying to just get away from a screen. So you know, I think it's a, I think it's an important offering. Um, I'm glad that others are doing it too. So it's I, you know, when I get on a long airplane flight, I mean, I have like a print subscription to the New Yorker, and you know, I'll bring like, like eight of those things on in my backpack and just crush them on a long flight. And like, that's, that's, I'm in a really happy place when I'm doing that. So. Oh,
0: watching the, yeah. Watching the stack of unread new New Yorkers diminishes one of, you know, the most underrated pleasure.
1: Oh, it's great. Yeah. Just chuck it, chuck it in the, in the next airport. God, I love, oh, I love no, leaving, I,
0: leaving one of this in the airport seat in front of me, just leave yeah. it in the pocket.
1: Yeah. Though they don't leave somebody it else's the problem person. now.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know.
1: so but no i get pleasure out of that um but i mean as far as you know as far as audiences go um you know it's just a matter of of spreading the word you know encouraging people to give these give these things a try you know see if if there's a, a place in in their lives where you know not everything has to be quick and kind of glib and uh you know, just sort of provoking the same sort of little chuckles that that golf Twitter cranks out. Um, you know that there is a you know another another style of storytelling, I guess right. that is you know ancient and venerable. So.
0: <laughs> slow slow reading. Yeah, slow reading. Sure. So, how did you meet Lawrence Stannegan? What's the uh, connection met- between- How did you get him on?
1: Well, I. I before I met him, I edited Lawrence at, at Travel and Leisure Golf. Um, we did a great story; it was a photo-driven piece on on Scottish caddies. And I think this ran in about two thousand six or, or somewhere in there. Um, uh, Lawrence went to a bunch of Scottish clubs, the old course in Prestwick and, and Troon, and and just sort of tracked down the crustiest caddies he could find. And the guys with the best Friday night stories and, you know, did profiles of, I don't know, half a dozen of these guys. And we had a photographer take portraits of them and, you know, just these really picturesque weathered characters. Um, so, but I actually, I met Lawrence at the Beijing Olympics. I went there just, uh, it was the summer before, TNL kind of uh, went down in flames. I went to the my wife, my wife and I went to the Olympics on just on pure vacation. And Lawrence was working at the games uh, for the Guardian at the time, and we got together and we had we had lunch uh, in the cafe just off of Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. And it was pouring rain. and We got these crappy, cheap umbrellas that failed us as we were walking around the city. It was a really, um, you know, fun afternoon to you know spend in the pouring rain with Lawrence in Beijing. <laughs> uh, yeah. This, so that's how, I, that's how I met him. We kept in touch over the years and, uh, you know, eventually we just, uh, we just decided to kind of push our chips into the center of the table and, and give this thing a try. Lauren Rubenstein was also somebody who was, you know, kind of a spiritual godfather of, of McKellar. He had, he and I had had, you know, sort of long lunches in New York over, this this type of golf magazine you know because in the 2000s the thing just that did not exist really at all and it turned out he'd been having the same conversations with with lawrence among others and um so when we when we talked about you know when we approach you know sort of broached the subject with each other we were almost immediately on the same page as far as you know what what we wanted it to be
0: It seems like there's such a strong, and I've heard you mention this before, there's like such a strong storytelling angle to most of the features in McKellar. You know, there's, they're, they're really, you know, in depth pieces and unique. And I know you look for a unique angle, and it's, it's, it's kind of got its own, its own voice, which I think you're, I'm sure you're very pleased with. But when you were talking about TNL Golf, and it, it strikes me that there's really not, that magazine had such a kind of perfect, uh, segment in the golf media world. You know, it did it did things that other magazines didn't. You know, you had the the big ones, golf and golf digest, who were as they are now, equipment and PJ tour and instruction driven. I and mean, TNL golf like had it had the travel component, it had uh feature stories, like you just talked about the caddies, it had uh, profiles, it it did more with architecture than other magazines. It seems like there's still that void. I don't I don't get that need fulfilled Anywhere in one place, you know, you have to go to a lot of different places in the media world right now to kind of get all those elements and you kind of have to patch it together. Do you think of, right. do you think a TNL revival or something along those lines could work in the current uh, publication well, you know, environment?
1: I, I mean, I would say that I would say that McKellar is trying to, is trying to revive certain aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, caddy goes, goes pretty long on, on travel in a way that is appealing to me. Um, you know, really sort of exotic adventure travel, um, which I think is really cool. You know, what? but what TNL does or did uh, is they did a lot with service, you know, service journalism. And, you know, I feel like at a distance of almost 15 years that, you know, printing out websites and phone numbers and the names of pros and green fees, you know, and really sort of spelling out the travel side of things in a service kind of way uh is not as valuable as it was back in the day i think everybody's pretty much conditioned now that like if you read it you know read the name of a golf course you kind of know that like it's there's a good chance it's going to have a website i mean back then it was you know um i you know i think it's just the the entire world has gravitated more toward the idea that you can you can make plans online. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't, you don't need to go to a travel agent anymore like that. I mean, that whole industry Talk, you know, people talk about the media being in difficult straits. I mean, like imagine being a travel agent. Do they even exist? Uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I can, can't imagine that. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually I think they do for, for sort of, um, certain communities like, you know, um, there's a, there's a travel agency in my town that, you know, is really, uh, geared towards, um, Central American, uh, migrant immigrants, um, you know, people who are you know, trying to go, go home to Central America at certain times where, you know, they maybe are not as connected to the online travel space as, as some might be. Um, so there, I, I do think that those, those communities are still served by travel agencies, but, um, for the most part, I still just like just the a, idea that's of just a dinosaur industry. Yeah,
0: I like. I still like the idea of walking to an office or picking up the phone and you know giving somebody a uh, location and, and dates and and say work it out for me. Let me know what you yeah. come up with.
1: That's service, man. You don't even need to think about it. Yeah, um, you know. I mean, which is different from you know. I mean, well, tour. There are certain tour operators that you know obviously you know are still doing really well, but the idea of like somebody. You know, basically performing the function of kayak, and you know,
0: or this one person who and
1: trying to get you the best. Yeah, like airfare. they were the
0: only person who had access to these databases or these right. this flight information. You know, right. That's crazy. The gatekeeper, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you've been tra- you've been traveling quite a bit lately and seeing a lot of different golf courses. I'm curious other than you know having just your sort of your library expanded and your points of reference enlarged and and seeing so many new places and new golf courses have you found that it does it fundamentally alter the way you look or critique or judge a golf course
1: that's a great question uh yeah i think so in what way i think so well well so i i think that we we probably need a a better angle into this question, um, you know, at least for clarity, um, you know, my day job is with golf week magazine these days. And, you know, I was hired there about 15 months ago when Brad Klein, uh, you know, left to go to golf advisor. And, uh, so I'm one of the three panelists for golf week's architecture section, uh, along with David Normoyle, the historian and Jay Blasey, uh, who's the working golf course architect. And so, you know, a big part of what we do is we host Raider retreats around the country, and that's so that's where my where my travel comes in. In the past, you know, I spent almost a decade at Departures Magazine, where my travel really was my travel. Um, you know, Departures was a luxury magazine that, you know, is an Amex Platinum and Black Card magazine, and they basically said early on, "You're our golf guy." You have carte blanche. Tell us what's good, and uh, and we'll go do it. So I, I would say, literally stuff like, um, I'd like to do a feature on Morfontaine or Hirono or Sandhills. They didn't, you know, they didn't, ha- they didn't care an iota. They, these are exclusive private clubs. You know, their feeling was, well, our readers are our affluent professionals, and um, they'll figure you know, it out. They can, they'll figure it out. Sure. Mm-hmm. So you know, I spent that was really from a travel standpoint and from a standpoint of, you know, kind of getting schooled in world-class architecture, that was kind of a really important part of my career that and to, and, and to a lesser extent travel and leisure, you know, with golf week, it's a, it's a lot more domestic travel. And that was, that was an area that, uh, that I didn't really cover that much. I did some of it, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm really seeing a lot more between the coasts now. And so it's, it's not as glamorous, I guess, but it's, it's, uh, but it's still great in its own way. Um, you know, like going to a place like the old farm in Virginia, you know, I've always thought Bobby Weed's a pretty cool architect and, you know, builds interesting greens and, uh, you know, seeing, seeing what he did on a, on a really attractive sort of Virginia hill country rolling property. Um, that was great. So uh, I mean, I, I, I've also, I guess I'd say I've, I've played more courses that are primarily well known because they're expensive, they're Veblen goods, you know, and that doesn't get me quite as excited, um, you know, is playing a, a triple digit Green Fee Fazio course that, you know, it's fairly clear that, you know, that not a ton of extra thought or care or love went into the finish work of, you know, certain places. I don't really want to name names, but then, you know, also seeing, uh, I mean, one of the, you know, one of the sort of coolest first time plays that I've, I've seen this year was a course called Rims Hill, which is in really the furthest reaches of San Diego County. It's like out by the Salton Sea or kind of middle of nowhere. And that's a, that's a Fazio design that, uh, I believe Tim Jackson who's now with Jackson and Khan, mm-hmm. um, you know, created. And, uh, that's, uh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting golf course. Um, you know, it's just got, it's got things that you, you wouldn't necessarily expect to see from, you know, these courses that are kind of meant to be, um, visual crowd pleasers, I guess, um, you know, like there's one one hole there where the green there's like a big, bur- like sort of berm earth you know grassed grassed over berm. It's high. It's a big mound, and then the green's on the other side of it, um, sort of benched in there. It's sort of a half punch bowl, I guess. You know, that's a very odd thing. It's not something you really expect to see on a Fazio course, and you know, so I thought that was cool. There's some center line center line bunkers out there, and and. You know, quirky short par fours, and some of the more kind of, you know, I guess modern what 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 people think of sort of modern fun golf architecture being. Um, So I was really I, I enjoyed seeing that course a lot.
0: I understand what you're saying, and and I I think that you're someone who, as you mentioned, kind of before about finding that. That EP in the record store that nobody know, knows about, like, and just because you're the founder of McKeller, and I mean, you you've, you're looking for something maybe less polished, something that's more authentic and, and handmade, and even if it's not considered high art, you know, by by what, yeah. whatever that means. What what you also uh, being on these uh, panelist trips with Golf Week, you meet a lot of new people. You meet people from all over the countries, and there's an incredible yes. range of of person who plays golf. So you're exposed yeah. to all kinds of people throughout the entire golf community with all different right. tastes and predilections and uh, judgments. What what section of the, would you estimate, and I'm not looking for a number, but just a discussion point, like how many people out there are, are, do you think are like you who are more interested in finding something that they can kind of covet and it doesn't have to be perfect, it doesn't have to be well-known, but they're really open to that that new, unique, hand handmade experience versus the players who are into other things you know what the what we would con- typically consider the average american golfer who is going to be impressed by the triple digit green fee experience
1: yeah um
0: is that is that sex? is that a growing demographic do you think is that a vital demographic or is it just like an uh, is it just a bunch of weirdos like you <laughs> like odd stuff
1: no it, i think well, when you talk about Golf Week, um, I mean, th- yes, the panel, uh, the, the the Raider universe, um, you know, really does comprise, you know, a diverse diverse group of people. Um, you know, in terms of age, uh, there are a lot of you know, there. It's not all guys. I mean, there are lots of women involved in it. Um, you know, people who are members at some of the best clubs in the country, and then folks who play you know the local public course so there it is a nice cr- and playing ability i mean we have some you know some awesome players on the golf week panel and then you know 18 handicappers as well so um you know that's a, that's a neat mix too and and i get a kick out of seeing these people interact you know in the retreat environment um so everybody's really respectful and and you know there seems to be a real interest in in uh, in sharing ideas, ex- exchanging viewpoints, people like me, I, you know, I'd say it's maybe, you know, if there are, I'd say it's maybe like one in five or one in six, there are, you know, there are, you know, I think a lot of people who are, you know, questing for something different, um, you know, who, you know, I, I, you're right. I mean, I am somebody that tends to prefer kind of a low fi rough and ready golf experience. You know, things that are big productions are uh, are often sort of a turnoff to me. Um, you know, I think that I think that a lot of places go really deep on you know trying to provide. It's, it's it it just comes down to service, right? Like what what is great service? And I think people have have really different perceptions of of what service is. You know, it, some people want to sort of have their asses kissed for, for the day and feel, and feel served, you know, whereas I think other people, you know, just want kind of something that is um, that is friendly and, and genuine and, but isn't intrusive, you know, like, you know, if you go to a Ritz Carlton or something and, you know, you have a, you know, you order an orange juice in the restaurant and, you know, you, you thank the server and it's, it's my pleasure. Like they've been programmed to say that, you know, I, I, that really bothers me when people have like a certain, when, when the training, when the scenes of the training reveal themselves, right. that bothers me, you know, it's like these, you know, these, these people who work in these service industry jobs are, are humans. Like they should, you know, be able to provide responses that are not part of a script, you know? So, and I think that, that in the golf, you know, everybody sort of sees in the golf space, you know, I'm sure listeners you know, can think of examples of service that feels really warm and authentic versus service that is, you know, hyper calibrated, but kind of phony. So I, I hope that answers your question a little bit. Um,
0: Well, this could be a function of my spending too much time on Twitter and social media, but there are certain. I'm very sensitive to a certain section of the the golfing social media world that really seems to be seeking out unique experiences, valuing those, and then then almost like fetishizing them. You know, whether it's the, the light canvas golf bags or you know the head covers or, or you know things like like that and it's just an interesting phenomenon to me that like uh, there's nothing wrong with that it should be you know celebrated it's, it's the guy in the record store like finding that that cool punk band that nobody knows about but there's a community of people out there who like that punk band too and you can connect over that but then if but then if that becomes like part of your identity and that that identity is sort of like becomes a, uh, a club and and it's standoffish and you're either in or you're out, then I'm not sure that then that kind of maybe takes it a little too far. And I, I don't know. I, I think I sense some of that, this drive for authenticity. It just not, not just golf. I'm sure it happens in every walk of life. I see that happening in golf though. And it's, it's not a good or bad thing, but it's just, I'm was curious to get your take. And if, if you're sensitive to that at all, and if, if you had uh, a value that you could, you can place on that. Cause it's, it's a sort of a slippery slope or, or a thin line between like being original and authentic and, and being kind of an asshole.
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. Not sure that's I mean, an
0: answerable. I mean, it's not really a question. No, it is. <laughs>
1: no. It, no, I, I, I get it. I mean, look, there's a commercial imperative behind, a lot of subcultural activities, you know, people saying, um, you know, I am different, you know, it's, I mean, high school is a prime example of this, you know, where, you know, all the nonconformists wind up looking alike, you know, and maybe there's a little bit of that in woke golf too. Um, you know, I think, I think the, the important thing is, is what you do with it. Um, you know, is what what people. I mean, you know these these are just symbols of, I guess, you know, or totems of, you know, certain throwback aspects of golf, like the single strap bag. You know, and but I mean, you know, if people are, you know, I, I think that most of the, most people who are. You know, sort of carrying for carrying forth in this manner are pretty inclusive. I don't, you know, I don't really. I can't imagine that why they wouldn't be. I think that a lot of people are really idealistic about you know um, trying to show trying to show uh, either non golfers or casual golfers that that golf can be fun and that golf can be kind of a chilled out activity that you can participate in with friends. That it doesn't have to be you know, again, this giant production where, you know, you spend a ton of money and you get supremely swagged out and you play five and a half hour rounds in a golf cart and, you know, and lose a dozen balls. You know, I, I think that's a, you know, I think that's a good message to be sending. Um, You know, it's, it's just, it's all in the messenger, I guess. Uh, And I think in, you know, in social media, you know, how, how how people are presenting themselves and how and how frequently they're sort of making these stands you know can affect the way that you know the way that viewers either respond to or do not respond to some of the the totems that they're holding up as being you know um emblematic of of this you know sort of ideal golf lifestyle
0: yeah and and i i think the the concept of inclusion exclusion is is the wrong conversation because I don't think it's being exclusive to, to really be passionate and excited about certain things. It does, it it does affect the narrative. Um, a a lot. I think it, I think it when you get so many people reacting to this one specific thing or these two specific things, it does create sort of like this, this heat. Uh, and and that can maybe, I guess it's a light that draws in, in more people. So I, I guess that can, be good i think as a natural reaction to things like that i just the kind of person that i am it kind of makes me want to examine the other side of it and in golf course architecture for instance you know if 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 there's so much uh love and praise being heaped on a certain classic seth Raynor style of design just to choose that for instance or or you know there's the idea out there that, you know, if it's not built by Tom Doak or Bill Coor or Gil Hans, then, you know, it's it's a lesser style of architecture. There's less skill behind it. That's going to make me go and re-examine the courses of Jack Nicholas and Tom Fazio. And I, I'm again, I'm not saying this is a healthy thing. That's just It's just the way I am. But I do think it's important to kind of not go all in on a certain golf related subject whether it's architecture or fashion or you know in music it's cliche to say but variety is important and from an architectural pr- perspective it makes or forces or it uh encourages me to, to to have an even broader and open more of an open mind than i probably would have otherwise had
1: yeah i agree i mean it's important to be open-minded um you know but sometimes it's uh you know it is a case of you know if you return to a course that you didn't like the first time sometimes you don't like it the second time either um you know sometimes it's just not it's just not your cup of tea you know and and sometimes your impressions can change you know so yeah you know i do think it's how often do your impressions change uh fairly often actually yeah, I can think of a bunch of courses that I've sort of changed directions on, you know, in one way or the other over the years. I mean, you know, the first time I, t- I played Tobacco Road, it's, of course, Tobacco Road is going to come up. Uh, you know, I just absolutely loved it, and you know, wrote this rave review in Lynx and links, um, and you know, I think I probably, I think I probably put down a lot of the things that are great about it. Maybe I was a little bit over the top, you know, the second time I went out there, you know, it didn't, it didn't have the same appeal to me. Um, You know, it seemed like the, the way that it played was not, was not quite as exciting. And maybe it was a little wetter um, than the first time. And that, that kind of took a little bit of the, the heat away from what strands had done there. It was a different season. And, you know, some of the greens, were not receiving shots in in ways that that uh maybe they should have you know the first time i played it i was on my own and and you know i was sort of seeing how it interfaced with my game the second time i was with a couple friends who are very good players and watching you know i think one of the really important things about uh about evaluating a golf course is is really paying close attention to what your playing partners are doing you know it's uh I think one of the great gifts uh, is is having the chance to to watch other people hit shots on a golf course and see how see how their their shots turn out, whether they be you know plus handicaps or or you know eighty year old ladies, um, just to see how, how people get around. I you know I'm really keen keen on doing that. Sometimes you know I could on to draw it back to Tobacco Road. I mean you know you'd see guys who can hit shots that I'm not capable of. You know, really playing holes in what I thought were intelligent ways, and, and, uh, you know, and, and it not being, you know, I mean, I'm not going to use the word fair because I I don't believe in that at all, but, but I guess the golf course not reacting the way that, that it maybe should have. Um, so, you know, that's one, one example. Um, you know, other courses, uh, you know, I was at Pronghorn recently and, I enjoyed the Fazio course there a lot more than I did the first time. Um, you know, it, am I going to, you know, sort of hold it up to the heavens? No, but I mean, it, I, I I think that there was more there. I realized that there was more there on my second play than than the first time around. And then sometimes you just, you know, you you there you can have love at first sight, and and you just keep going down that road. You know, I went out to La Sonia for the second time this summer in Wisconsin, and I know Andy Johnson. Uh, you know, held a big event there earlier in the year, which uh, props to him for doing that, um, you know, for showing off that kind of, that kind of uh, just um, sui generous design awesomeness. Um, you know, I went, I, I played it five years ago and loved it. And I went back again this summer and I loved it even more. And that's, that's even, that's an even better feeling. Um you know, when your love for a course deepens, the more you play it. That's that's when you know you're really onto something. I think that's the name of the game in, in in golf travel.
0: It's interesting, like when you play a golf course more and more. I find that I find that I I usually like the golf course more and more the more I play it, and even if it's not a what's considered a great golf course. Obviously, if you played National Golf Links of America over and over, I mean you like it more and more because there's more and more to like and to learn same with pine valley you know like great golf courses are always slow to reveal all of their character but i find that even kind of mediocre golf courses local golf courses you you start to respect them the more you play them maybe not you don't get to the point where you're going to say it's a great golf course but every golf course even poorly designed ones or average average design golf courses like have a lot to reveal about themselves. I mean, there's a hundred different ways to play the same golf hole, you know, play it a hundred times, you get a hundred different outcomes. So I've always kind of questioned whether that's a good way, a good standard to have, you know, your arsenal of critique, because, you know, some people would say, you know, well, you you don't understand the golf course, you have to play it a lot to like get all of its nuance and to really get the full picture. And I find that to be true on every single golf course. So I don't know that that's an important element when you're critiquing a golf course.
1: Well, what's the alternative? I mean, well, I guess, th- I guess it's
0: a way to say that, that you can go to a golf course one time and whatever impression you have, whatever you take away from that, whatever your, your critique is, that's fine. And, yeah,
1: and, I think so. I mean, that's a lot of what I do. Is, yeah. Is, I mean, that's what most I people I write do. about it. You know, yes, you know, I've, I've, spent most of my career writing about first impressions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's kind of the nature of, of being a golf writer, you know, and you have to, you have to just, you know, trust your, trust your eyes and, yep. and, you know, and, and, your, and your experience either playing or walking a course and, you know, and, and put that out there, um, you know, but, but but sure. I mean, multiple plays always—not uh, always—but you know, can change things sometimes, or can can give you a deeper understanding of of what a course can offer. Um, you know, I, I am I am in the Rand Morissette camp with that. I do I do think that you know having having multiple plays is a great luxury. Um, you know, and can really lead lead you to a a, a good place in terms of your understanding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's for, for sure. For sure. Like I said, I've, I've played more rounds. The golf courses that I've played the most on are not very good golf courses. And I tend to like them more, the more I, the more I play them. Uh, so I don't know what that, I don't know what that says about my, my judgment, if anything, it's just, um, a phenomenon. Like you said, like in, in our business, you typically get one shot and you have to have a, a real clean idea of what you're, what you're looking for you know, you have to understand your mind. You have to know what you're seeing. You have to, and trust your, trust your impressions. I mean, cause that's, that's why you, that's why you're doing what you're doing.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, sometimes it can take years, you know, like my home course is at Yale university in New Haven. And, uh, the 10th hole there is, uh, par four. That's like maybe 360, 370 yards. And it's to my mind, clearly the hardest hole on the golf course. Um, You know, you kind of, you drive over the entrance driveway, over a ridge, blindly down into a valley. And it's kind of one of the narrower fairways on the course. And then you play a solid two clubs uphill, again, blind to the green. And for years and years, I always had a a hard, and the green is kind of in a bowl. And I always had a hard time holding the green because, you know, I'm not a super long hitter and I'd be, I'd be hitting, you know, a six iron in there or something. And, um, you know, it just, it, I couldn't, couldn't quite get enough air under the ball to hold the green. And after years of playing it, I realized that the rainer had created this big dramatic fold, this dip in the front, right portion of the green, where if you just aimed for that and you were coming in with less loft, that you could use that slope to kill the heat of the ball and hold the green. And I, I had probably been a member there for eight years before I figured that out. So, you know, I, I do think, you know, it's a great course is revealing themselves over time. Sometimes it's a really long time. Right.
0: Well, it, like I said, every, every golf course has, has secrets, even the simplest ones.
1: Sure. Or, I mean, another example from, yeah, I was, I was playing there with a guy who's a really good, good player from Los Angeles, like a one or two handicap. And, um, you know, the 17th hole has a principal's nose bunker. That's like 40 or 50 yards short of the green. And we'd hit our tee shots. You know, it's a kind of a blind drive up, you know, up over a ridge. And, uh, you know, he's like, what, what's this bunker doing there? You know, see, he just hit it two ninety and down the middle or something. He's like, why is this bunker here? This doesn't make any sense. And I mean, the answer to that was because, you know, when the course first opened the ridge that you had to clear on the tee shot was eight feet higher so you had to hit the ball i mean anybody who's ever played hickory golf knows that it's, it's challenging to hit a brassy like a, a wooden shafted driver high mm-hmm. you know they just don't really launch and so what would happen is you know i think a lot of people would hit spoons or sort of 19 degree clubs off of that off of that tee and just to you know get over that ridge. And at that point you're hitting a four iron and, and now that little principles nose complex makes sense. It just, people could not get it so far down the fairway for that, for that feature to be irrelevant. You know, I think that, you know, I mean, that's another thing about, you know, just getting to know with older courses, you know, doing the persimmon and blade, doing the hickory thing. I'm, I'm totally for all that stuff you know, not, not because it's not because it has cachet or like hipster qualities to it, but because you can learn, you can actually learn firsthand how older courses were meant to behave. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's, I think there's immense value in that, you know, with, with older equipment or an older ball features that you literally do not see, they're invisible to you when you're armed with the modern gear. Suddenly, become like, "Hey, what's that? What's that weird bunker forty yards short of the green?" You know, I, it, you know, it's amazing. Your eye can actually, you know, if 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 a feature has no playing value to you, I think your eye and your brain can actually delete it. You know, you you don't even see it if it's if it if it's not something that is uh, meaningful to you as you're playing. Um, but you can, you can change your golf game through equipment to, to bring some of that back and start seeing courses differently. I I like that a lot.
0: It's like taking away your, your armor, your, your weaponry, you know, like and forcing you to adapt to an environment that you're not comfortable in. Like if you don't, if you know, you, you're going to hit your drive a max of 210 or 200, you know, and you know, and you don't literally don't have the club that's going to carry that feature out there. Yeah. I mean, it puts you in a completely different state of mind. And, you know, it's like being a primitive human without the weaponry, you know, all of your senses go on, all of a sudden you have to be aware of what's happening on the periphery. You know, you have to be aware of the the scent on the wind and the the sounds around you. It's like primitive, primitive golf to, and it brings, that brings in so much more of the uh, original architecture, but you have to, then again, you have to be playing on a golf course that has that character and those features in a 1974 George Cobb course out in South Carolina <laughs> there's not much to yeah. ignore there
1: right well yeah it's it, because there just hasn't been enough time behind it to you know I mean it was built under the kind of regime of a game that is still relatively similar to ours um, not at the professional level obviously but at the amateur level yeah yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's just you know, it's it's kind of. I saw this stupid thing online recently where, you know, some expert gamer had decided forget what game it was. It was like some Grand Theft Auto type of game where the guy did a full playthrough and he only needed one bullet to, you know he played this whole shoot 'em up thing, you know, this entire game and he he he, resolved, he he wanted to figure out how you know if he could play his way through the entire game firing his gun the fewest times possible and he determined that he, he only needed one bullet to, to play his entire way through the game and it's you know and it's ridiculous he sort of made a travesty of the game designer's intent but you know it's kind of hilarious yeah. um when one of these first person shooters you know so I mean, you you know when you get you know when, uh, gamers get good at something they try to just set themselves new challenges to you know um, to keep themselves entertained because they fundamentally like the game that they're playing. And uh, you know, so yeah, it's the same thing in golf. It's like, you know, now I'm not bored with, you know, I'm not bored with modern golf at all. You know, I, I, I love playing my modern equipment just as much. It's just, it really is just about, you know, using different modes of play as different ways of seeing.
0: I find that you can get away with that a lot more if you're playing on a constant basis. But for, for a lot of us with like young families and things like that, like a, a round of golf is too precious that. So I, when I go out, I mean, I sort of have some level of expectation or, or a, a score that I'm trying to shoot or, you know, to, to try to accomplish something, you know, with my skill that day, because I don't know when I'm going to be back at it. So I want to make the most of it. If I, if I played golf every single day, I'd be a lot more open to playing with hickories and persimmons and, you know, messing around and, you know, trying trick shots on the golf course rather than, you know, trying to get the ball in the hole. But yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. What is your, what's your favorite modern golf course?
1: Hmm. Good question. Um, Oh, do I have to just have one?
0: Well, you can go. You know, one A, one B, one C.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, I I find that there's so much to be said for Valley Neal and Sandhills as being, you know, two two kind of phenomenal. I guess you'd call prairie courses that, you know, are actually really different from each other, you know, as just, I think both are just incredible golf experiences, um, you know, and, and ones that, you know, just lead you into, I guess a, a deeper understanding of golf and life and all that woo woo stuff. I, another I mean another one bandon trails I, you know I think Bandon trails is I'm a complete stand for and trails um, you know I love how I love how you there's a narrative to that golf course and you know is it is it perfect no it's not but you know the, the way that you move through that landscape you know and you know from this kind of classic linksland setting and into this northwestern forest and then you know, the way that the transitions occur there and the quality of the finish work at Bandon trails is absolutely out of this world. Um, the texture, the, the little native plants and knick knick in these weird little, you know, ground hugging, um, uh, flora that are out there. I just, I love it. I love that, 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 that textural feel that I feel that Bandon trails gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, just, I think that, I think that great golf courses tell stories, you know, and Mike DeVries calls it rhythm and flow, you know, the rhythm, the rhythm and flow of a routing, um, you know, this concept that, uh, you know, it's just like a, like a, like a book or a movie, a great novel or a great movie where it's like, not every scene is, you know, Michael Bay's Transformers. It's like, they're quiet moments and intimate moments and then big, exciting, dramatic things happen and then they sort of take the foot off the gas a little bit and something thoughtful happens and then you get punched again. And it's like that to me is, that's great golf, classic or modern. You know, and I think that that the great, you know, great modern courses have a have a kind of flow and a, a narrative to them.
0: That, you know, that's an interesting point. And I think that's kind of what separates... Who we would consider the the best architects of our generation, with with those who are, are talented but don't quite achieve the same results. And it takes courage to to pack that into your design to be to have the confidence to take your foot off the gas and say, the, I'm not going to have you know this little section of the golf course is going to be quieter, uh, and I'm not going to try to like explode everything, and I'm not going to keep shoving it in the players' face. I mean, it takes a lot of nerve. To have in confidence to, to do that, and that's that's a very good point about Bannon Trails because that I think that would be somebody's criticism of that golf course is you know there are a few holes that are just kind of kind of there and they're boring, and that's the point of it really. I mean that, that leads you into the exciting parts, um, and you know I don't know that you get that prior to to Bill Corr and Tom Doke and their you know the the mass body of their work. I'm not, I, th- I think that was something that didn't exist for a long time.
1: Well, it, it existed in the golden age. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, you know, I think that, that James Braid courses are, are very much like that. Yeah. Um, you know, and... Uh, and I,
0: uh, <clears throat> I just talked to Frank Pond. He, he mentioned that, that Tom Simpson wrote about yeah. that, about how he kind yeah. wanted to put some, like, some sloppy holes in there, you know, yeah, just to right. mix it up for yeah.
1: variety. Yeah, that's, that's Weathered and Simpson, the architectural side of golf, you know, it, Weathered and Simpson wrote that, you know, each that a, that a course should have, you know, one to one to one and a half sort of unusual, like weird or or weak holes, mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, you look at the old course, like, you know, ninth at the old course is, you know, is clearly the sort of, you know, weird, awkward hole that's there. You know, I think that in the U.S., you know, there was a like a Pine Valley. I think Pine Valley had a significant impact um, in terms of you know developers and architects thinking about this idea of you know this sort of eighteen incredible you know knockout holes. You know, I think that that Crump and his the various architects that he um, that he conspired with in the creation of Pine Valley, you know, had a sort of, there was a perfectionism in mind there, you know, that sort of, I think leads people in the other direction. Um, this idea that, you know, that a golf course should be, you know, just one epic tough hole after another, that it's not okay to just throw out kind of a little, you know, w- w- weird little 300 yard par four that, you know, is pretty easy. And, you know, that's just sort of allows people to gather themselves mentally. I mean, that, what weather and Simpson wrote about is just the, the idea that, you know, it's not, it's not ideal to, to have that because, because golfers would just get mentally exhausted by all the greatness. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, I, I wish that I had the book in front of me because it's so quotable but uh yeah just the idea that like you know that that too much perfection is tiring
0: bill murray said something like it's a good thing you know christmas comes once a year cuz nobody could handle that much intensity all the time
1: yeah exactly so exactly
0: yeah it's good to, it's good to have those those quiet moments um yeah even like on a great album you know you, you don't that's why greatest hits albums are never good albums you know you get you get the you get all this the this stuff, but the more you get to know an album or listen to it, it's it's often those like kind of throwaway songs that, that you come to appreciate the most. The, those off, oh, absolutely. off pieces, I the off pace moments.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, we were we were talking offline about David Berman who just died, um, you know, who was a poet and uh, singer for you know, the the Silver Jews, which is a nineties mm-hmm. indie rock band and a Confederate of Stephen Malkmus and Paveman and all that and you know, I after the news of his death was announced i you know went back and listened to some of these albums of his that i'd had when i was in college and wore out on tape and the cassette player in my car and you know i, I was listening to the first the first silver jews album which is called starlight walker and uh the last song on that is exactly what you what you're describing it's just uh it, it's called the silver pageant and it's it's just a throwaway it's 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 um they did a field recording of, you know, a, basically a dinner party or a party. And it's just a bunch of, you know, when you have 15 people, you know, guys and girls just getting together, drinking and laughing and having fun. And somebody just turned on the tape recorder for that. And then they just, you know, threw an instrumental track, like a goofy little instrumental jaunty thing over the top of it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, you know, the result is this is this very 90s sort of relic. I You know, I think that that was... You know, but there's such a sweetness to it. It's like, you know, there's nothing there. It's, it's a, you know, it's a party that happened, you know, close to 30 years ago. But there's a sweetness to that. You know, it's not. And, I mean, David Berman wrote a lot of great songs and wrote a lot of great lyrics. Um, you know, and had a lot of, just had a lot to say about about life in the world. Um, but that song just, you know, which is basically an instrumental, it just really made me smile. It made me...
0: Made me feel nice about, yeah it, well, it goes know. back to this this vague notion of authenticity that you, you know like you're authentic when you're yourself, and when you're yourself, you know you have ebbs and flows and different personalities that overtake you and, and moments throughout your day and your life and it, it's it's messy it's it's fast and slow and boring and exciting and that you know th- there's nothing more kind of offputting when when somebody's just trying too hard. Like too hard yeah. all the time. If it's a band that's trying too hard, if it's a golf yeah. course architect that's just trying so hard to make eighteen postcard signature holes, you know, people right. that's inauthentic. It's not the way our our brains, like as you said, as as and Simpson said, you know, it's too much for us to process. We need the we need just those authentic dinner party little shanty musics playing <laughs> on the end of the album sometimes.
1: Right. Right.
0: Well, Tom, what's what's coming up next for you? What are you working on? When when can we see another issue of McKellar?
1: I'm hoping that we'll get it out in the fall. Um, you know, it's uh, it's tricky. We're such a small staff. You know, it's just Lawrence and myself and, and our art director, Paul. We've got, you know, a lot of stories in. And just, you know, the issue is definitely well underway. Um, you know, it's uh, until we... Can find a way to grow to the point where we can adhere to a a more formal production schedule. It's sort of a it, it's done when it's done kind of thing. That is something that, on one hand, is not really a great business plan um, in terms of magazine so selling magazines, but on the other hand, it you know I'm comfortable. It makes me comfortable that you know, we're going to, we're going to deliver something good when it's ready, you know, and we're not going to take people's money or ask people for their money until we have that thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm hoping we can get something together by, you know, by November or December. Um, we shall see it's, uh, you know, and then my day job is involved. I've got a lot of travel for, for golf week in October and I'm looking forward to, I'm going to Cabot in October. And, uh, I've been, I've been there before, right? but I have not played, uh, uh Cabot Cliffs yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm really excited to do that and, and, uh, and especially excited to go back to Highlands Links, you know, which, you know, again, talk about a course that, you know, that tells a story, you know, both in terms of routing and, uh, and in terms of, um, storytelling through shaping, Highlands Lynx is tough to beat, man. Mm. I mean, you know, Stanley Thompson, you know, had a great sense of humor. And, um, I was lucky that, you know, Ian Andrew about seven years ago and invited me up there. I'd pitched a story to Lynx where I I was going to hang out and, you know, work with the crew for a week, uh, while they were restoring the course. And so I did that and, um, went up there and, you know, threw on some wellies and grabbed a shovel and, and worked along the side, these guys who were really cool. They were, you know, Inganish, Nova Scotia is a remote place. And the guys who uh, who are maintaining the course today are often the grandsons of the men who built the course with Stanley Thompson. Uh, so there is a, you know, in Inganish, I mean, it's pretty much a choice between either working in some capacity at, at Highlands or fishing, you know, going out and doing commercial fishing in the North Atlantic. So there are deep familial connections uh, among these Canadian Canadian folks. Uh, the, the Highlands Links is really woven intensely into its community the way that, that most places are not. But, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but, you know, at Highlands you know, Thompson was not afraid to, you know, to provide visual cues through bunker shapes or green shapes. I mean, the, the second hole at, at Highlands, you know, has a green that's shaped like a Tam shanter, and the hole is called Tam O'Shanter. And, <laughs> and you hit a drive and it's like this fun dr- down, you know, that you can't see the green from the tee, but it's a downhill tee shot. And you kind of come around the bend and you're down the fairway and you look at the green and you're like, yeah, like that's a, That's just a, it's a funny little jaunty Tam O'Shanter hat and it's (laughs) amusing. It makes me smile. You know, there's a, there's a bunker there called Muckle Mouth Meg, which is, I mean, this is talk about dated cultural references, but you know, it was this, this sort of Scottish (laughs) folk anti-heroine from the middle 19th century, you know, uh, who was like this, this like ugly kind of village girl who I forget what she, she did. Terrible things. I don't know. But so he made this, muckle know, this ridiculous muckle mouth Meg. It has something to do with sucking eggs. And I, I don't even <laughs> want to get too deep into it without having the full story straight. Um,
0: Different world back then.
1: Yeah. I mean, Thompson was, you know, but he was, he was really riffing and that, you know, so there's, you know, all that's going on there. And then that walk is just off the charts it's you know it's probably an eight mile walk but you you just don't care because it is you're traveling through some of the most glorious natural scenery that you know that you'll find in north america i mean you know canada's canada's wild and it's 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 big and it's bold and beautiful so um you know the idea of the idea of a, a tight routing in there where you're only really seeing certain aspects of the mountains or the ocean I, I mean it's not it's not a given that you know that the uh, that the best strategy is to have the next tee 10 feet from where you teed off or from where you hold out um you know i think thompson was right to you know say all right we're going to walk 100 yards along this raging river mm-hmm. to the yeah. next tee and it's going to take you into this environment so you know that's that's those are smart routing decisions um, he's not following somebody else's rule book about having, having to have this routing that is, you know, so tightly wound that, uh, you know, that, that you lose great golf as a result.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's playing to the landscape really. And yeah, that's what,
2: yeah, that's what good right. routings do
0: is, is they, they take advantage of, of what exists and those views exist. There's the, there's a the river there, you know, you're in a beautiful forest. That's what, you know, it's, it's the right call, like you said, to, to emphasize those elements
1: absolutely and you're going to be there in
0: october that that could be quite spectacular
1: yes it's in fall i don't think i've ever been up there in the fall so to see it in in fall dress is going to be special i'm I'm looking forward to that you might get Um, a little a little weather yeah yeah
0: i'd welcome that right now as we sit here in the middle of august
1: i know i'm ready i'm ready to i'm ready to throw on the rain gear and yeah. I get I get really cagey and, and grouchy when I don't have a proper Lynx golf adventure, you know, really each year. And at the moment it's looking like 2019 is not going to be a year where I make it across the pond. So, I, you know, but I think that, that Nova Scotia and going to Cadet and, and playing those courses and going to Highlands, like that's a, That's a pretty decent That's pretty good. I mean, if if you you cannot get
0: to the UK, then that's not a bad alternative. It's not a bad substitute.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'll take it.
0: Tom, this was fun. Thanks for doing it.
1: It was fun. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me on, on the podcast. Okay, that was
0: Mr. Thomas Dunn, someone who long has been and is even more so now a leader in the publishing world, in the golf publishing world. As a lover of the printed word, he was not content to let others... Flail and, and under deliver. So he took matters into his own hands along with Lawrence Dunnigan and founded McKellar Magazine, uh, which is a real asset to the golf world and everybody who loves golf. If you haven't checked it out yet, please do mckellarmagazine.com. So I think we got some closure on Bobby Jones Golf Course. Definitely don't be discouraged if you're passing through Atlanta and you want to see something interesting. Go there, go try it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Uh, it's just one of those projects, though, uh, given you know, that kind of funding that they raised and that property in that location. Uh, a real missed opportunity. I, I guess I would sum it up by saying it's it's one of those projects that just needed a whole lot of editing. There's just too many ideas on that site. Too many buildings, tennis courts, parking garages, clubhouse. The relocating the Georgia Hall of Fame there. There's the big practice area. Then the uh, reversible nine hole golf course. Being married to the idea of the golf cart. Um, there's just so much, so much going on, and and it just should be pared down and, and much simpler. I mean. You, if you really want to connect to the community and attract all kinds of golfers and give them a wholesome golf experience, there's, there's just too many ingredients happening. Uh, the architecture is a little funny. The, the angles, the way the hole is set up, because they have to go both ways. You know, just nothing really like looks right in the architecture and the way the greens set up to the angle of play. And it's just a little, the whole thing's just a little bizarre. There's this one hole. It's the ninth hole on, on the Magnolia routing, I believe. It's like a Z shaped par 5. You know, you're not sure where to drive it, but so you're supposed to drive it way out to the left, and then almost shoot 90 degrees to the right, lay up short of this creek, and then you have you know like a 150 yard shot over this creek into the green. But when you're standing there where you're teeing off, you see this this lane to the right of the fairway, and it's it's rough, but it's maintained, and it's really not long rough. It's pretty much cut almost at the same height of the fairway. So so the players would just go down this alleyway and, and sort of make more of a direct straight hole out of it. And it was kind of cool that way that you could either play to the left fairway or the right fairway. It ended up being a like a split fairway hole. And then they went and planted about 15 trees in that area to take away that alleyway, you know. So it's just, you should have just left that open and let the players be creative. And instead it's, you know, you're dictated to have to play this really weird, awkward hole that, that's going to leave this long third shot over a creek into this par five. So. Again, I know I'm being negative. Sorry, Bobby Jones, but please play it for yourself and, and make your own decisions about that. One last thought: I thought it was really interesting when Tom was talking about how your brain and your eyes can actually delete features on a golf course if they're irrelevant to the way you're playing a hole. And I think that's true. You know, yeah, and that would change for every golfer, every skill level. But just think about like what what that must be like for a, a PGA tour player. Like how much, how many hazards that were built by architects on the golf courses that they play just absolutely don't even register to a pro. When, you're, when you can fly the ball on command 300, 305, 310, you're not even looking at bunkers anymore. You're not looking at hazards. You're just looking at landing spots out there and you don't see, you're really only looking at probably 20% of the golf course because you're just going straight to that 300 yard mark and everything in between the tee box and that is just irrelevant. So I thought that was interesting that Tom picked up on that and, and made a note how how your brain can do that. And then by playing older equipment or different golf courses with with different textures or playing a different set of tees, you all of a sudden will start to notice things about a golf course that you hadn't before because you you don't have the ability to ignore them. It forces you to pay attention. And that's what good architecture does. And it's becoming harder and harder for architects to be able to do that in this age where the best players in the world are just not even seeing 70% of what you're building. So anyway, interesting thought about that. Let's wrap this up. Thanks, Tom Dunn, for coming on the podcast. It was a long time in the making, but I enjoyed that conversation. I'd like to remind you, wherever you get your podcast, wherever you stream or download, please give the show a rating and a review. That helps me out. And actually, what it really does, it just lets me know that you're out there and you're listening and that you care. So thanks. If you'll do that, I appreciate it. I'd like to encourage you to go to TalkingGolf.com to stay up to date on golf's best podcast. That's the home of State of the Game. The I Seek Golf Podcast, Talking Golf History with Connor Lewis. For, and look for some upcoming changes there, too. Uh, not to tease anything out too much, but there could be some changes and some new shows added to that lineup. So stay involved. Check it out, TalkingGolf.com. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That's where you can jump into some great golf conversation. Of course, my handle is at FeedTheBall. Let's wrap this up now. I'd like to thank the Sun Dogs for the music. Thanks again to Tom Dunn for joining me. Thanks to you all for listening. And until we get a chance to do this again... Adiós.
2: The maker let you see the river move. But now that your evil dreams came true, they're on your face. A row of teeth that'll come to a place. I know you laughed when I left. But you really only hurt yourself. You see your curtains moving the wind. You can bet I'm betting against you again Cause I'm a man who has a wife who has a mother Married one but she loved another You're a tower without the bell I'm a negative wishing well I should have checked the stable door for the name